0: This message is brought to you by this excellent church. We excel at reshaping people's values and reconciling men to God. You're about to hear peace and preach. Be blessed. Hallelujah. Praise God. That was some good stuff. Praise God. All right, let's have a seat. Hallelujah. Hunkie, uh, can I get a hanky please? A hanky. sorry. Can I get a hanky please? Hallelujah. Praise God. Alright, so we are starting a new series today and this is going to take a while. We're not going to rush it. We're going to take our time with this series, and um, this series is about charismatics, praise God, things that pertain to spirituals, hallelujah, things that pertain to spirituals, that means um, the workings of gifts of the spirits, charismatic abilities, supernatural abilities, which is a very central part of the Christian ethos, um, the Christian beliefs. so... Um, we're going to be talking about that for a, a good long while. Hallelujah. But I want to start by laying, um, like I like to do, I like to lay a historical background, a historical context for the things that we're teaching so that it can be well appreciated. Praise God. So that's why, that's what i we're going to be doing today, and I think you're going to find it really interesting. Hallelujah. Um, I think you're going to find it really interesting. Praise God. So we're going to talk about the history of charismatics, or the history of um, Pentecostalism. Well, it's actually history of charismatics. I'll tell you the difference between what the term charismatics and Pentecostalism. Hallelujah. We're going to talk about the difference. Um, we're going to talk about the history of charismatics as far as a movement in the body of Christ, the charismatic movement. I'm going to talk about that, the history of it in the church, in the Christian church. Um, and then we're going to look at a couple of things that actually laid the foundation for um, the teaching on charismatics. Praise God. Are you guys ready? Are you guys ready? All right. So let's start. Let me start by defining charismatics. Right. So, charismatics refers to um, it refers to that the charismatic movement refers to that movement in the body of Christ. That new that or that way of thinking. That view of Christianity that embraces a lot of the use of um, charismatic abilities. By charismatic abilities, I'm talking about the things like the gift of the spirit, right? Um, It is very core, not just gift of the spirit, actually. The core of charismatics is emotional revivalism, right? The the view of Christianity that embraces a strong... um, Use of emotions in Christian worship. So, charismatic is marked the the, the characteristics of charismatics is a lot of emotional revivalism. Church, we together. A, a lot of emotional revivalism, a um, a lot of um, use of um, a, a way of thinking of. Thank you. So. A lot of... Charismatics is... When we have a lot of emotional revivalism, when we have a lot of... um, A lot of... The earlier parts of... um, Of... The earlier... The earlier parts of um, Pentecostalism had a lot of call to holiness and change of the way you live and all that. Right? Then... um, 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 Charismatics has a lot of... Embrace of the idea of control over charismatics over the gift of the spirit and everything pentecostalism is different pentecostalism is the movement of in the body of christ that as a denomination or as a branch of the body right is built on charismatics that's what Pentecostalism is. Pentecostalism is that denomination in the body of Christ all over the world that is built on charismatics. There are a lot of differences and all that. But basically, that's what they are. It, and it's any church or any gathering of people that is built on charismatics as the core of what they do, right? You call it a Pentecostal church. Um, charismatics is different because there are people, there are Christians of other denominations who are not in the charismatic um, than who are not, who are not in Pentecostalism, but have um, affinity for Charismatics. So Charismatics is actually cross denominational. So you have a lot of Catholics that are into Charismatics, right? You have a lot of. Um, you have a lot of. Um, um, Protestant churches that are into, you know, charismatics and all that. So you have a whole lot of of this. So charismatics basically is that move, and Pentecostalism is that denomination that is built around that move, church all together. So now let's talk about the history. Let's talk about how that move started. And So I'll start by saying this. Charismatics as a thing has always been in the body of Christ. The Church of Christ has always believed, has, has always embraced miraculous things, you know, the use of the Spirit to do miraculous things and all that. The the Church of Christ has always embraced it. But this is the thing, and I want you guys to follow me. I hope you guys are with me. For the overwhelming majority of Christianity, in fact, for literally, for like, let's just say, for 1900 out of the 2000 years. For 1900 out of the 2000 years of Christianity so far, hmm? things like Acts of the the Apostles, the book of Acts of the Apostles, has been considered a descriptive book. It's considered a book that describes what the apostles did. It was not considered a book that tells us what we should do. Church out together. So the book of Acts is considered a historical book. The, the church always considered the book of Acts a historical book that people look at and they can use it to see see how the apostles conducted themselves, how they acted in those days and everything, right? Um, they never really saw it as a prescription of how the church should be now. So it was actually very recently, like if you consider the history of the whole church Pentecostalism is, like, really recent. Like, it's so recent that um, if someone wants to be um, careful or conservative, the person will not even be in a hurry to call it a movement yet. Praise God. Church, out together. person will not be in a hurry to call it a movement yet because there are still a lot of things that are yet to be known. Because there are a lot of movements that have happened in 2,000 years of Christianity that started and within 100 years, 150 years, they stopped. And we can't hear of them again. And we don't even know of them. Pentecostalism is not up to 100 years old. Or let's just say it's roughly 100 years old, out of the 2,000 years. So it's, um, it's really, really recent. Church to out together. But you have to understand the trend so that it doesn't sound like as if it's a completely new thing. It's, it's a completely new thing that just started. Um... So the church has always believed in the miraculous. The church has always believed that supernatural things that can happen can happen. But one thing that the church always, the, the church never really believed was that the book of Acts was descriptive for us, was prescriptive for us. It was, they believed that it was basically descriptive. And the second thing that is more, another very important thing is that um, the, the the history of the church as known as documented, apart from let's talk about apart from the days of the apostles and all that. We never see emotional revivalism in the church. Christianity has always been an issue of the heart. A man repents and receives it in his heart and it affects his conduct. The strong entrenchment of Christianity into emotionalism, that's what what the the, um, um, Christian historians call it, emotional revivalism. That emotional revivalism was never really a thing. What you see all through this church is that Christianity has always been incredibly intellectual. It has been incredibly, it has been incredibly intellectual. It has been about a way of life. It has been about the way people believe. The, the, Christ, the church, in fact, the church has always believed that they never separated having the Holy Spirit and when you get saved. It was Pentecostalism that began to put a kind of divide in between. The church has always believed that the moment you are saved, you receive the Holy Spirit. It was when Pentecostalism started in, 1900, in the early 1900s, I'll still come to that, that we'll see how the difference is, that they began to differentiate it and began to say, you can be saved, but you are not yet filled with the Spirit because you don't speak in tongues. That kind of idea is very recent. The church has always believed that the moment you are saved, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit, and um, once you are sealed with the Holy Spirit, it, you, are, you have the Holy Ghost, because is that is what you know began to differentiate. So the church has always believed that this thing is part of who we are. So the Holy Spirit is in our life. it's helping us to be better versions of ourselves. it's helping us to improve our conduct, that kind of thing. That's what the church has always believed. Right? Now, so this emotional revivalism where your emotions are involved in worship, where your emotions are involved in worship, where there's an external manifestation in your emotions of the fact that you have been saved, is actually a very recent thing, right? So this is history of it. So, if you look at the church throughout the last 2,000 years, I'm happy that the last, the immediate last series that we did, praise God. All right, so what you're going to see for the majority of church history is that we see this um, very liturgical outlook on Christianity. Um, the way the Catholic Church, the, the Roman Catholic Church had always um, conducted this, the Eastern Orthodox Church. Maybe we'll talk about early church history recent and soon so that we can see the difference between. Um, the Western Church and the Eastern Church, praise God. So, if, if you look at church history, the way church history has always been has always been more heavily liturgical. The way the Catholic Church is now, or the way the um, Eastern Orthodox Church is, right, is the way Christianity is, is the way Christianity has always been. Um, it's very interesting that when we think of Christianity, especially in this part of the world and among particular evangelicals, you, you feel like as if this is how Christianity has always been. And those guys are the ones that their Christianity is weird based on the church history it is your own christianity that's actually weird the way they do christianity is the way christianity has been for the overwhelming majority of christianity it's like if christianity is 100 the way we are doing it now is true out of it do you understand that because overwhelming the majority of time, before the, after the, the church splits for the eastern half and the western half, that liturgical system of doing things, where we we'll go to church, we we'll sing hymns, the pastor preaches, and then we we'll take communion and then we we'll go and all that, is the way Christianity has been. Church altogether. Then something began to happen in the, in the um, 1700s. That's in the 18th century. So let me give you a brief synopsis of, at least you guys will remember now because of our recent study of. Of the Protestant Reformation, at least the, the history is still be fresh in your head. Let me give you an overview of the Christian Church the way it has been since the 1500s. So, 1500s, 16th century, we see um, um, Martin Luther doing the Reformation, right? We see Calvinism taking roots um, most of Western Europe, England, and all that. Are we together? Then. In the 1600s, that's the 17th century, we see Aminianism Armin, Armin, taking roots in the um, Netherlands, isn't it? Uh, but it doesn't really blow. It doesn't really get popular as such. Um, the, the, at this time, the church is still overwhelmingly Catholic, Anglican in England, Catholic in most of Europe, and um, Protestants in most of Western Europe. Do you understand that? So what we see is, as in, as in Reformed theology, so what you have is Anglican in England, um, the Church of England, we see Catholic all over uh, Western Europe, and then we see um, the Reformed guys in most of Northwestern countries, Germany, Swiss, Swiss regions, Southern Netherlands, um, Netherlands, where we call the Netherlands today, you know, and all that, and all that. 1600, 1600 is also the year that the Mayflower actually um, took off from England to go to America. So that was the first time that the ship went from England to America to go and settle. Before then... The Spanish guys have already started going to explore Southern America and all that and all that. But the first time, you know, when the English began to go to America, it was 16 or something on the Mayflower, right? So early 16th century, we see American um, colonists settling for the first time. Are we together? Don't forget, later part of 16th century or early part of 16th century, up in England, um, Arminianism has already started there. Now, so we progressed. to that 16th century, so Reformed theology. Takes roots in most of England, and then as people are coming to the Americas, they are coming with Reformed theology. So everybody that's in Americas in that early part is Reformed. They are Protestants. They are all um, Baptists. They are, you know, they are they are all Baptists. They are Presbyterians. They are um, Lutherans. They are Calvinists. That's that's what they are having there. What we have is basically Reformed guys in the 1600s, right? So we get to the 1700s. The American colonies have started getting settled. Reform theology has taken deep roots in, in, in Europe. Um, and then we see 1700s. So American guys are beginning to settle down in America, right? Then 1800s are the year, the, the, the very popular year. It's a very popular century that we all know about. It's the year of massive technological increase, the industrial revolution, Darwinism, um, Marxism, um, everything, all the isms, all the popular things in sociology, science, and everything really, really takes roots in the 1800s and the 19th century. Then in the 20th century, 1900s, that's when we have World War I, World War II, which is closer to us, so we can still remember you know, all that period. Now, so this is the thing. 1500s, reform theology has taken roots. 1600s, people are settling in North America. 1700s, something very interesting happens. So, in England, um, there's a family called the Wesley family, Charles and John Wesley. They are um, Oxford, the the, the the their parents are very educated, highly educated Oxford University graduates. I think their father was a lecturer or something like that. But was, I think was also a pastor, a layman or something. Their mother also was very intelligent, very educated woman. So Charles Wesley and John Wesley. Actually, John Wesley is the one that. No, um, well, Charles Wesley is actually the one that started the. Wait, why would that makes sense. Is Charles the older one or the younger one? John and George. Okay, so Charles is the younger one. Charles is the one that's in Oxford, and then he starts. Um, Something called the Holy Club, and so what they do in that club is that they are basically they like to pray, they like to talk about um, Christian conduct, holiness, that kind of thing. They do a lot of welfareism and all that. They're ones that want to do things like we're well, fasting two days in a week and all those kinds of things. Charles Wesley joins them, and so they are fellowship in school. They are doing well. While they are doing that, they meet a guy called George Whitfield. George Whitfield is also a very, very intelligent guy, and he's a very, very good speaker and all that. So at the initial part, so now this is an interesting thing. Charles Wesley, they're in England. Don't forget they're in England. They're in Oxford University. So Charles Wesley is, um, John, John Wesley, John and Charles Wesley, they are Armenians. So they are the ones that began, they are the people that began to talk about, in fact, John Wesley actually wrote a book called Justification of Faith. It's, they are the ones that really, so Armenianism was never popular. So all that 1500s, 1600s, it was still among a few people. It had, never, it had not become mainstream, mainstream because Protestant um, Reformed theology was what was reigning in opposition to Catholic theology. But um, these guys in Oxford, John and Charles Wesley with their brother, they are the ones that now began to really, they began to talk about how that faith is for everybody. God has, you know, given his grace to everybody and everybody can be saved and all that. So that's what they began to preach and all that. And then they now moved from England to America. So they came to America to do a lot of evangelism and all that. So when, when John Wesley moved to America, that's when he now started the Methodist church, church altogether. And their friend, George Whitefield, so as he was growing and he was maturing, he began to understand his own faith better and he began to find, find out that he really believes in Calvinism more. He believes in Calvinism instead of Arminianism. And so these two best friends, John Wesley and... Um, in fact, John, and, John Wesley and, and George Whitefield actually started the Methodist church together. They started method just to church together, right, in the early 1700s. So they started church together, but they began to have a lot of issues, doctrinal issues, a lot of doctrinal context. Like, studying church history makes you realize that there's nothing happening now that has not happened before, right? All these, you know, doctrinal fights that looks like we're the first to argue, we're not the first to argue. And, and their story is very inspiring. So we see, we see John Wesley, a very passionate man, He's you know, gaining a lot of ground. He's preaching to people. And then he has his friend, George Whitfield. George Whitfield is also a guy that was known to be a very great preacher. They said his voice used to boom, that he could preach outside where thousands of people are gathered, and they would all hear him, that he was a very great preacher. So George Whitfield was a Calvinist, but it was, it was, as he grew up, he began to discover that he believes more in Calvinism than in Armenian outlook. John Wesley began to insist on Armenianism, so both of them now had a clash, and they had just started a church together. Imagine they are starting a church together, and both of them believe two different things, right? So they even had to split the church um, at a point. They actually had to split the church. Um, And when they split the church... Um, they have to split the church and all that. No. So what happened was that both of them had their quarrel and everything. And then, you know, they now said, let's agree to disagree. One person will keep quiet. We'll not be loud on our differences. So that was their resolution. While for the sake of the church, we'll not be loud on our differences, we agree on many things. Let's focus on what we agree on in the church. The things that we disagree about, we won't talk about it. So George Whitfield now stepped down for John Wesley to be the head of the church and all that and all that. But after some time, it now led to a split. The guys that were George Whitfield's guys, they even broke out to go and start a church. Of their own, a, a Presbyterian church of sorts. Yes, they went, to, they broke out to start the Presbyterian church. So that's the context. Now, John Wesley taught Arminianism. If I wrote a book, Justification by Faith, in which he talked about how that um, he's one that want to use the, the thing called prevenient grace. That is the idea that God has given grace to all people. All people can believe. All people have the ability to respond to God's grace, or they can deny it and all that. So, really, most of us in most of us, most Christ, if you're a Christian you are not, um, you are not um, reformed you are a indirect you are an indirect heir of John Wesley of the Methodist outlook. Do you understand they' are the ones that really broke out from the mainstream reformed system all over the world that time it was you were either Catholic or you were reformed. Do you understand it was the Methodists that began to really break out and they were very evangelical they were so evangelical that at the beginning of the 1700s there were only like nineteen churches so like 18 or 20 churches on the eastern coast of america so as they began to do westward expansion a lot of them now began to really um they began to really preach and evangelize they were moving toward starting churches settling churches that the bible they said by the 1800s there were over 19,000 methodist churches in america alone so they were big on evangelism early so we're talking about early 1700s right George Whitfield, on the other hand, he became an evangelistic preacher. So what he used to do is I used to go around like a 10 preacher. He was focused mainly in New England, on the Eastern Ghost. And he used to go about preaching the gospel, preaching people, and what he was preaching. So this is something very interesting that people don't know. So, you know, people always look at the church like as if America and and Western Europe have always been Christians. It's recently when Darwin told us about evolution. That we now stop being Christians, you know, we always have that feeling. Like it's nowadays that people are becoming atheists and everything and everything. (laughs) It's not true. So let me. This is the funny thing. In the 1700s, when the, um, George Whitfield was preaching. So, when George Whitfield was preaching, he was always preaching an awakening. And he's the one that began to actually. So, there's something called the first awakening, and the, the first great awakening, and the second great awakening. So, this is what began to happen. By the time it was 1700s, after the, the American colonists had settled in the 1600s in America, by the 1700s, America be, began to become very rich. American people became very rich from trade of cotton, gold, tea, everything you can imagine. Imagine English people that moved to another land that is a completely whole continent and and with protestants' work ethic. These guys were workaholics. So as they were working, they were making so much money, then they discovered sugar, and then then that's when they now found out that there was so much money to make that they could not do it themselves, and that's what spurred them to go heavy on slave trade. That also made them to go heavy on slave trade because there was so much. They started refining sugar and everything. So within a short time, those small rabble of people that went to America because they were afraid of put, um, persecution, within a hundred years, they had almost become richer than the England itself. That's has to show you how fast America became very rich. The United States became very rich. So at that time, early 1700s, oh, this is how many years after, 300 years after, I <laughs> um, George Whitfield began to was preaching the Great Awakening. So there's something called the Great Awakening. And the Great Awakening was the times, the periods in America where a lot of people were gathered together to hear revivalist messages. And this was the first time that we actually began to see in the body of Christ where there was emotional revivalism. So George Whitfield began to preach. That people need to become serious with God. That people need to be holy in their lives. That's where the holiness movement. That's don't worry. Just follow me. You'll see. He began to preach that people should be holy in their lives. People should be passionate about church. And it was an interdenominational thing. So everybody was coming to listen to him. So he was preaching about God, believe in the gospel, make you know, love God. You know what? How revival messages are. He's the one that began to really preach revival messages. You know, like that. And he was, you know, he was making a lot of ground. A lot of people would gather. And it was the first time that we actually began to see emotional revivalism. That is when people would gather. And as a pastor is preaching, people will begin to feel things. And they will be shrieking. And there will be ecstasy. And people will be like, oh, Jesus. And they will be crying and those kinds of things. The, imp- 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 um, the inclusion of emotion in Christianity. Emotional revivalism. That was where way it actually started. This happens was um, the 1720s to 1740s, thereabouts. Early 1700s. So it was the first time. Then there's another guy called Jonathan Edwards. He was, in fact, he's the first president of Yale University. Um, George Whitfield also was an Oxford graduate, extremely intelligent. Jonathan Edwards was another person, was a prodigy. This one was a servant, extremely intelligent. It is said that Oxford University published an article that he wrote on spiders at the age of 13 or 12 or something. His father too was very intelligent. His great-grandfather was a very intelligent pastor. In those days, to be a pastor meant that you are the most intelligent person. It was, pastoring was for extremely intelligent people. Oxford trained, Cambridge trained, Yale trained, Princeton trained. I said Princeton. I said Yale, Princeton. Jonathan Edwards is the first VC or the first president of Princeton University. Very intelligent man. He too was also preaching in Boston, the great awakening. Preaching to people to get, you know, a rivalry with it, you know, and all that and all that. Then, um, like 30, 30 or 40 years after, I think that was in the late 1700s, there was a second great awakening where a lot of people were again stared into holiness, live your life holy, you know, get stirred up for God, let your life live holy and everything. And the, the context behind why these guys were preaching this revivalism was that if you read the books that they wrote, they were complaining about how lukewarm and how cold and how atheistic a lot of people were. People like to imagine America was founded on by Christians so to speak. Even Benjamin Franklin did not believe in God. He didn't. So what, what we're going to find is that, for example, one good, way, one good insight that gives us, something that gives us good insight into that time is that as of the 1700s, only one in ten people was taking communion in church. And the reason why that history is significant is because people that take communion in church are the people that are considered Christians. People that are considered serious. For example, if you are coming and going, coming and going, you don't stay stable in church and living your life anyhow, you don't take communion. If If they doubt your salvation in any way, they don't take communion. Communion is for people that are serious. In America at the time, it was said that one in ten people was taking communion. So that means that one in ten people were serious Christians. So when we try to we look at that period and try to imagine that all of them were wearing white and black with their suits and they were all Christian fundamentalist looking kind people and all that is not true. So what you find is a whole lot of peasants and working people that are just walking, going home to sleep, walking, going home to sleep, walking, going home to sleep. <laughs> people that are not serious with God. So that was the context that made people like George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards to begin to really preach. You know, emotional revivalism, let Jesus be involved in your life. You know, Jonathan was the one that began to preach that God is in everything that we are doing. He used to preach that God is in everything that we are doing. He used to tell them that. Um, so, one of the things that came out from the Great Awakening, that people began to look for miracles and all that. Jonathan Edwards would say, No, you don't need miracles. God is in everything you are doing, and on and on and on and on and on. So, that's what the 1700s looked like. Church, out together. Now, in the 1800s, something interesting began to, began to happen. So with a lot of advancements, a lot of things, a lot of new philosophies, a lot of you know, um, 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 industrial revolution began to come up and everything, something very interesting began to happen. In the 1800s, we began to see that people began to fall sick a lot. So this was before the advancement in health, in our knowledge of medicine and there was an industrial revolution. So people began to work in all these factories, coal suits, and all those kinds of things. People were getting all kinds of cancers, lung diseases, and everything. A lot of people were dying, right? And at the same time... Sorry? At the same time, we began to see a lot of new ideas on the outlook of the world. Charles Darwin comes up, and it seems just catches fire that we are all evolved from apes and all those kinds of things. So at that time... A lot of people began to shake in their faith. And so in the 1800s, what we are going to see is that there was a rise of what we call fundamentalism, Christian fundamentalism. It it takes a different picture. It meant something different than what we say today. It means something different. In those days, what it meant was that there were a group of people that began to insist that this is what Christianity believes, and we must not take from it. So they had some five things they believed in, atonement, uh, um inerrancy of scripture, those kinds of things. So there were a lot of so the people that are called fundamentalists. And the reason why is because they were fighting against modernization. They were fighting against evolution, Darwinism, all these new things that were coming. So they felt like those things were chipping. They felt like those things were chipping away from Christianity. So they were fighting it with all their might. So while they were fighting, there were also some Christians that were called liberalists. So they are the ones that began to say we are knowing better about the world now. Christianity is not the one. So that's what we began to see all the feminist movements. Actually the feminist movement started from the church there's a whole elaborate history about it the suffrage movement, the feminist movement, the ones that began to fight against subjugation of women in the church and all those kinds of things, they began to start from you know, from Pentecostal churches and everything. So the ones that began to, so and the, the interesting thing is that all these women were very highly educated. They would do a whole, they would do a lot of theses on the book of Genesis chapter one to three, why it was man and male and female God made them, and the woman is not, you know, subject to them. And there were a lot of fundamentalists that because of the way that they interpreted their Bible, they had issues with it. So they fight so you can get that picture. So they see the like we we'll see a lot of liberalisation. For example, the abolition and. Um, the cancelling of slavery was a lot of Christian liberals, a lot of Methodist Christian liberals, a lot of them. In fact, Charles Wesley has been fighting for uh, what they call it, ending of slave trade, before he died. John Wesley even believed that John Wesley don't, don't anybody that comes to church that that has a slave or believes in slavery. They don't give them communion in Methodist church. That's how bad it was. And since the 1700s, Methodists have always been saying that slavery is evil fighting against it and all that. So you now eighteen hundred with that kind of context, Joe. So we had a lot of Christians who were fighting slavery, fighting subjugation of women and all those things that we had some that believed that ah, those things are Christian things. We must not let them go. You can understand that kind of thing. So we had that kind of that, that kind of dichotomy and all that. So and the problem with this is just the one that we know now. Some of the liberalism things spread into um, began to go too far. Right? Of course, you can understand that some liberalism have begun to go too far that they're almost not Christians again. And of course, you get some varying shades of fundamentals. Fundamentalists. Some fundamentalists went too far down to insisting that slavery is the will of God and all those kind of stupid things. Do you understand that? So, yeah, that's what we have in the 18th century. Now, so, that emotional revivalism thing, after the Second Great Awakening, we see it not as popular as such. But then, Something began to happen. So, because of the amount of sickness that was going around in the 19th century, that's in the 1800s, there was a lot of sickness. So, it was funny. It was a funny period, a funny period where people were beginning to discover a whole lot more about science and technology, but also a period where people were not living in the clean worlds like they were living in the previous years. So their cities became very dirty. London became very dirty. New York was very dirty. You know, that kind of thing. There were factories. People were inhaling smoke. People were living in the factories, dying from cancer. All those kinds of nasty, nasty things. People were just sick, sick, sick and ill. So we had a lot of people being sick at the same time as a lot of advancement in science and technology began to rise. So we began to see this thing where there was this sudden push and ginger for the miraculous, for healing healing movements we began to also see a lot of things like all these um um drive for holiness beliefs and then the way you eat the, what the kind of food you eat and all that so that, those are the kind of there are a lot of movements like that uh movement like the what they call them one seven day adventists came from that period the ymca christian college club came from that period all those things they came from that period so all those things of if you eat right um Kellogg's, the guy that founded Kellogg's cereal, he's the one that started one cracker in those days. They believe that if you eat that cracker it's very dry cracker like this. That if you eat it it will make your body to be strong because you must keep your body, you must watch your body. All those movements started in that period. So there was this move for um, you know, for that kind of thing. Church, are you following me? Then we now get to the early 1900s. i to give you a context. Then we'll now get to the early 1900s. So before I forget, before I get into the late 1900s, there's something I want to highlight about um, John Wesley and George Whitfield's relationship. Both of them were opposite in doctrine, especially in doctrines of predestination and all that and all that. Of course, they both believed in justification by faith and everything. But when it comes to reform versus non-reform, they were actually opposite. Yet they were best of friends. John Wesley was the one that preached at George Whitfield's death, um, funeral ceremony. In fact, there was a meet- meeting that was recorded. Like their letters, we still have the copies of their letters today, how they will talk to each other and how they would be so warm for each other that if, if there was in this context, you'd be wondering, that this, are you guys gay? What's going on here? That kind of thing. That's how much love they have for each other. In fact, there was a meeting that was said that both of them had where they sat down with their Bibles for hours, locked themselves in a room, and they were like, we have to not lock themselves literally, but like they were in a room and saying, we must, we'll study the Bible until we agree on everything. And both of them could not come to an, to an agreement, especially about this reformed issue. And both of them started crying. <laughs> and they started crying. And they were crying and locking themselves. And they were like, no, we can't, all that. you know, that kind of thing. So it's, it's very interesting how two people can love themselves and be so different. I don't know why we can't have that today. Why must doctrinal difference mean personal animosity? Why? Why can't two best friends? have differences in doctrine. Why? It's a very remarkable story. Truly remarkable. Truly remarkable story. And I think we can do that. And I think we should... Um, um, I think we should strive to get there. I know some of the things that make all these things get emotional and get lead to personal animosities. is the fact, things like the fact that... Um, many times you doubt the motivations of the person that you're arguing with, right? You you doubt whether there are are reasons for believing that doctrine is pure and all that, or you doubt their intellectual capacity. So, so, you know, sometimes the major reasons why we look down on people that have different beliefs is because we either think they're stupid or we believe that they have ulterior motive for what they believe and everything. But I think in a case where, and that's why I don't think it is justified for you to say things about somebody else's doctrine when you have never actually sat down to discuss with the person and be sure that exactly what the person believes. Do you understand that? Look at those two people. They sat down and opened their Bible and said, okay, what do you believe? This is what I believe. And they argued it out and got to the point on these matters that they were defying on. And when you get to that point, you know the person you are talking to. Both of us are Oxford graduates. Both of us are theologians. So both of us are not stupid. So you know that the person believes what they believe because of the way they say things. You need to get to that point. You know, when we're not just we need to get to that point praise god church out together now so charismatic so let's let's go on so in the early 1900s something interesting began to happen so um so there was this guy called charles parhan in america and up in england there was another guy called smith piggsfoot <laughs> so there was this interesting new wave and this interesting new wave began to put together a lot of things, a lot of characteristics from the great awakening, and added a new layer of it on top. So one of the things that they begin to uh, one of the things that they began to pick together was that they began to believe a lot in, of course, number one, emotional revivalism, right? Holiness. So they began to expecting their meetings that a lot of emotions would be involved in people's worship they began to talk about holiness and revival in their christian conduct but then they now added another layer to it and the layer they now began to add was the issue of so this was the first time that we actually see that change from looking at the, the book of the acts of the apostles from as a book that describes to a book that prescribes so it was no more just describing what happened. We now begin to see people like Charles Smith, and Smith so Both of them are actually the godfathers of Pentecostalism. When they trace the history back, it starts, that's where you see the whole thing starting from. So these guys began to say that the Acts of the Apostles were not just books that were telling us what they did, but it's telling us how we should do now. Church out together. So this Charles, uh, Charles Fox Parham, he was born in the later part of the 1800s, that's 1873, and he died in the early 1900s, and he's the one that began to teach this thing. Now, this Charles Parham in America, Smith Wigglesworth in England, both of them were not educated people. Right, he was a plumber in fact he did not know how to read I think it was after he had the supernatural experience that he was able to read and, and it was only the bible he could read or something interesting like that so these are, these are men that are not theologians by any stretch of the imagination and it's actually a very very telling thing right? and I will talk about the implications now because of all the movements that we ever had in the body of Christ, everybody that we've ever said, they wrote something that you know began to shape the way the church is going and everything, all through church history, Martin Luther, Calvin, Melanchthon, um, the Loyola Jesuits, and Augustine Aquinas, everybody in church history, if you even go far back, we're talking about Irenaeus, or original those guys, they were extremely highly educated people. Highly educated. The first time that you see just anybody picking their Bible, To start a movement was in Pentecostalism. Was the first time. So we see the Charles Fox Parham. This Charles Fox Parham is even someone that's very interesting. Charles Fox Parham even used to Parham even used to preach that white people were made on the eighth day, all the other races were made on the sixth day, but white people were made on the eighth day. They used to preach stuff like that, right? So anyway, that aside. So these guys began to preach emotional revivalism, holiness, and they began to preach tongues. So this is the first time that they began to actually preach that people should speak in tongues and it is the evidence that you have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You need to understand the difference. All through church history, 1,900 years, the church always believed that when you get saved, you have the Holy Spirit, right? And the Holy Spirit is inside you and you have been saved with the Holy Spirit. These guys began to preach that there is something more. And that more is that the Holy Spirit is going to come and fill you in like a different level of way. And when He does that, there will be the evidence of doing that by speaking in tongues. And they are referenced with the book of Acts. So, do you understand the difference now? The church is to look at that thing as telling us what happened to them. These guys are now coming and saying, This is what should be happening to us now. Guys, I went together? So, they began to do, th- so they began to hold, hold meetings. They would have meetings in the public. They'll have, um, um, what do you guys call them? Mm. Eh? Yeah, tent meetings, sometimes in open floor, revivals, crusades. crusades, And then they will you know, meet a lot of people, and then they will do a lot of healings, and then they will get people to speak with tongues and all that. And then we began to see a lot of ecstasy in meetings where people begin to shriek and fall and do all those kinds of manifestations, cry, jump, laugh, shout, all those kinds of things. We began to see a lot of emotional revivalism going on in their meetings. Now, there was a guy called William J. Seymour. William J. Seymour was the son of a slave. He was a black man. Smallpox, even, is it polio or smallpox? I think it was smallpox. Sport one of his eyes, so he had only one eye. So William J. Seymour was born in 1870 also, 1870, um, and he died in 1822. He was a black man. So he used to go for... Uh, that's, we're talking about America now. Smith Wigglesworth is up in the UK, right? He's in, up in England. He's there. In America, we have Fox, Japan. So William J. Seymour will go to um, um, Mr. Charles... What is his name? Mr. Fox's meetings. And then, you know, he began to really enjoy his meeting, And then Fox took him under his wing and began to train him and began to teach him everything and all that. And those, this was in the eastern coast, right? Eastern coast. Then there was a lady that, that lives in Los Angeles, in, up in California she went for a meeting on the eastern coast and then she saw um, where William J. Seymour really preached and she was really blessed. Then when she went home, she said, you guys need to tell this guy to come and preach in LA and everything. So they now wrote a letter to him to come. Um, um, Fox, um, Mr. Fox Parhan even supported um, William J. Seymour to go to the eastern coast, to the western coast to go and preach in their meetings. And Then when they went to go and preach in their meetings, boom! It made sure just went boom! A lot of people were, you know, a lot of people were blessed, like we will say in church, there was a lot of revival, a lot of revival, a lot of emotionalism, a lot of um, people began to speak in tongues. At this time, William J. Simon himself was not speaking in tongues, but he was preaching that the Holy Spirit can fill you and you speak in tongues. Interestingly, in one of his own meetings, he now began to speak in tongues and all that. But this was a time when um, slavery had been abolished uh, um, slavery there was an abolition uh, abolition the abolition had already happened slavery had been stopped but there was still a lot of racism and jim crow so this guy would go and pastor in meetings the people that are coming for the meetings are every kind of race white people, chinese people, latino people, black people, everybody was coming both rich and poor and everything so a lot of journalists used to really Abuse their meetings at that time that they have there's a new church where a black person is their pastor and white people are also going to the church and everything so there's a lot of racism against him at the time you know and all that kind of stuff so because of that there are a lot of people that now begin to really do that pentecostalism thing that they were now chased out of their church and so when they were chased out of their church they now moved into a building on azusa street Are we together when they moved into that building on Azusa Street, it was even in that meeting itself that William J. Simon himself started speaking in tongues. So when they moved into that meeting, and people now started going for that meeting, they moved into that house. They now started having all these meetings, and then hundreds of people, thousands of people want to enter inside the building and all that. So they used to have all these kinds of great manifestations. That's where William J. Simon himself began to speak in tongues, and all kinds of things that happened. It was from there that a lot of people that went to, that will break out the Pentecostalism move. A lot of them began to interact with that. So Assemblies of God, Four Square, um, all those Pentecostal missions, they began to break out from that, as was that street revival, breaking around the world down to England. But England's move was not that strong. But it was busy, busy, majorly in America. So it began to break around the world. They come to break around, um, um, what they call it, America and everything. So, early 1900s, we see, that's when the Azusa Street revival happened, 1906 or thereabouts. The Azusa Street revival happened, and then Pentecostalism was, for the first time, introduced into Christianity in a way that it will now become mainstream. Do you understand that? Then they now had a second wave of Pentecostal rise, right? So, it kind of went like this, played through the beat, then there was now a second wave in the 1950s and 1960s. And in the 1950s and 1960s, there was a coinciding of a lot of... So when the first, when the first um, Pentecostal, start, when the Pentecostal first move started, right? it was very cross-cultural. White people, black people, all kinds of people, both rich and poor, were involved in the move. Do you understand? And so we began to see that. But in the 1950s and 1960s, we began to see a lot of white rich people getting involved. In the Pentecostal movement, we now began to see a lot of white people began to take on Pentecostalism in a new way and began to break into the white um, portions of America, so to speak. And if you go and look at this period, you'll see that there's a huge coinciding with um, people like. Um, that's why we're going to see the move. It was a generation of people that, the, of young men that began to rise. People like T.L. Osborne, um, Kenneth he Again, and a lot of other people that are not so popular all over America that were part of that Pentecostal move. So in 1950s and 1960s, this thing began to spill into campuses and universities. They began to see a lot of that rise and everything. So that was the second move. And then there was now something called the third wave. That is the new Pentecostalism, which was another peak that happened in the 1980s. And that is the the year when we began to see a lot of the new, recent guys in Pentecostalism really rise. That was the time when Word of Faith really broke out on a um, global scale. That's when the Word of Faith movement that was pioneered, pioneered by Kenneth E. Higgins. That's when it began to break out on a maximum and you know on a large level, so to speak. So what you now begin to see is this. So what differentiated these so, this is the thing. So, like I said earlier, charismatics is not necessarily Pentecostalism. Pentecostalism are churches that are built around charismatics, like Foursquare, like assemblies of God, church, of God mission, and all that. So, you should notice something. The first and second great um, Pentecostal waves, when they came out, there was the emphasis of charismatic gifts, emotional um, revivalism, and all that, together with the holiness move. But the third wave, Was not as loud on the holiness move. It was more it was much louder on other things. So these were the things that the whole that Pentecostalism has in common. Number one, the feeling of the spirit, whereby a person can speak with tongues. Speaking in tongues was no more seen as something special that only God gives. At a certain time, speaking in tongues now began to be seen as something that every Christian should do when you are filled with the Holy Spirit. That's one of the major things that distinguishes Pentecostalism. Number two is the belief that a person's desire or a person has the ability to get charismatic things to happen. Before then, overwhelming majority of the church has always seen it as something that is purely about the will of God, purely that something God does. God anoints certain saints and God anoints certain people. It was in Pentecostalism that you began to see that confidence that people can really get those things to happen, you know, for themselves. And then, like I said, the first two awakening ones were strong in holiness and conduct and all that, but the last move did not really have that stress on holiness like the previous like the previous ones had. So. A lot of these Pentecostal charismatic guys were people that were in orthodox churches or they were in normal reformed churches. And they were getting these belief systems and they were preaching out of those churches. And then they were going now to go and form, found Pentecostal churches. So Pentecostal churches are like um, very recent, 100 years old. Pentecostalism as a church. Is very, very recent. That's when someone breaks out to do this thing. Now, don't get it twisted. People in other denominations can subscribe to charismatics, but not be Pentecostals. Do you understand that? So a Methodist can subscribe to charismatic beliefs, but not be a Pentecostal. So that means that they still do the normal Liturgy and all that, but they also um, believe that they can speak in tongues, they can believe in healing and everything. There's one twist that I didn't talk to you guys about. So there was something happening at the same time in the 1900s. Is the rise of the evangelicals. So in the 1800s, we had the Christian fundamentals, right? Fundamentalists that were fighting against modernization. Then there was now this new crop of people that began to see the problem of fundamentalism and they began to see that fundamentalism in its, in its trying to fight progress was not being right because it was anti-science, it was anti-progress and all that. So what we now began to see is a new rise of intellectuals, intellectual Christians, highly intellectual Christians that were now um, protecting, that were conservative with the core tenets of Christianity, but were not fighting the advancement in science and technology. They began to call them the evangelicals. They were not charismatics. Most of them, many of them didn't subscribe to charismatics as such, but they were very intellectual people, and they were very evangelistic, and they were this thing and all that. So, the fact that the ones that began to fund, fund most of the Seminaries, Christian theological seminaries that we see in America today are the ones that we're going to find them. That is the generation of people like Billy Graham. A lot of them are the ones that began to sit down together to systematize how we can have inerrancy of doctrine while we are Christians and not be fundamentalists and all that. So, they fought the fundamentalists, like, they did not agree with the fundamentalists, but but they were very intellectual and they were very side moving In fact, that is the, so these um, people, these evangelicals, they were from the mainstream denominations. They were Methodists, they were Presbyterians, they were Baptists, but they were very intellectual and they were conservative with the core tenets of um, Christianity. So, they called themselves evangelicals. It is, in fact, the evangelicals are the ones that created apologetics. They are the ones. That is the line of the Billy Graham's of this world. There is lot, there's another guy, um, Mr. Um, Reverend Ockhart, and there are a couple of them that stay a lot of seminaries and all that. They are the ones. They don't speak in tongues. They don't do they, they don't do. But when it comes to Christianity as in defense of the faith and all that, they are the ones that are there. That is the lineage of all the Christian apologists that we have today. Church, do you get that? Does that summary suffice? Hope I didn't confuse you. What's the time? So I have 15 minutes, Mwabi. Thank God. Now, here are some notes that I would like to say in the next 15 minutes. One of the other things that really marks Pentecostalism that was quite notable, like I said earlier, is the fact that the pioneers and the people that really carried it did not have rigorous philosophical, theological, or any kind of education. William J. Seymour was the son of a slave. Smith Figglesworth was a plumber. Fox Parhan was, I can't remember what he was, but he was not highly educated. The people that he handed over to in that, as was that street revival, people that began to break off were people that never had any kind of theological training. Under that influence of the Pentecostal move and all that, they began to go and start this. So what we see consistently with the Pentecostal move is that They are always founded first on the move of the spirits, emotional revivalism, but not on rigorous theological um, work. Guys, you understand that? And it is consistent with all of them. Tell Osborne was the son of a potato farmer. Um, You know, same thing, all of them. Church all together. And it is telling. And I think it's a good thing, in a sense. Reminds us of Apostle Peter. There's a kind of cynicism that can come when a person has spent a lot of rigor in doing what I remember is a good thing, that it has good sides to it. When you, do, when you have expended a lot of rigor and you have done a lot of laborious work in systematization of theology where you sit down and actually study the Bible, compare it with the philosophies of the world, do textual criticisms and all those kinds of things. When you do that, there's a kind of cynicism that can come from it, whereby the beauty of emotionalism becomes lost on you. Now, do you know one of the major things that differentiates Pentecostalism from evangelicals, is emotionalism or emotional revivalism. And emotional revivalism is that state of mind where a person allows their emotions to be involved in their worship. Where worship is not just seen as a rational thing or as a logical thing or as a conduct manner matter, but when you begin to expect that the worship should also enter into your emotions and the way you feel. Pentecostalism is very, very big on that, and I think that has a lot of value, because do you know why? At the end of the day, human beings are majorly emotional, and this is the reason why, where the other Christ- where the other forms of Christian Christianity had begun to see, beg- had begun to see a kind of platoon in the amount of growth that he had. Pentecostalism has seen massive growth where the others haven't. So for a denomination that started only barely 100 years ago, there are over 500 million adherents today in the body of Christ. Over 500 million. Why? Because emotionalism is of value. It is useful. It is useful. And there's a kind of cynicism that can come on you when you are are a very, very intellectual person. Because human beings are Emotional and the things that touch people's emotions are the things that can get their hearts. And when you get a man's heart, that is where you've gotten everything you can get a man's loyalty, you can get a man to be um, loyal to you. So, protest, um, um, what's the name now? Pentecostalism began to. Steer up people and begin to teach people that they should their emotions should be involved. And that is the reason why and that is actually what we see in Protestantism. So, there's a... <laughs> what we see in charismatics, where people lift up their hands and their eyes are closed and you're feeling goosebumps and people are laughing, people are jumping, people are laughing under their spirit, um, people are doing all those things, are uh, emotionalisms. The church, for the majority of time, did not see the necessity of that in worship. What I'm saying is that it is extremely useful for the believer. It can help to edify people. It can help people to be stayed on cross. Don't get it twisted though. Um, All the Christians before us that were not emotional in their worship and all that, they are not any less Christians, though. They all did very well in their own way. Look at the evangelicals, for example. Billy Graham has done more missionary work than any Pentecostal church. But he didn't speak in tongues. He didn't believe in it. So don't get it twisted. I'm not saying that those people did not do that and all that. This also is the reason why you see charismatics always gathered in churches, and they always fall under the anointing, and they always cry, and they laugh under the spirit, and they fall under the spirit, and all those things. And yet, they will say uh, their lives their lives are not changing, in quotes. Listen to me. Emotionalism has its place. It can be taken to the excess. So what we are going to see in this third wave of... Uh, so that's why it is the natural evolution. right? So what we are going to see in this third wave of, um, of Pentecostalism is that you begin to see a centralization of emotionalism, right, and things like liturgy and rational, rational, rationality of Christianity being put in the fringes. So that's what we see in all our recent, do I need to mention this, I don't need to mention this, but you get what I'm saying. That's what you see in all the recent moves that we have, where we have a lot of denominations or churches now that are based around songs. The seeds were sown in the 1980s we were always writing songs about how Jesus loves us and everything, and oh my God, oh my God, the Holy Spirit loves me, and all that, you know. It's the emotionalism. It's the emotionalism. And the seeds were sown. And it has some value. The problem is that I also believe that it can be taken to the excess. It can be taken to the excess. So the excess will start when it has become centralized in liturgy, such that it is the central thing that we are gathered to do. All the time the emotionalism and that's and that's why one of the problems we're going to see is that one of the things i'm going to say is that um people can be emotionalistic without the substance people can be emotionalistic without the substance no there's a difference <laughs> there's a difference emotional is not emotionalistic <laughs> Emotionalistic is, ah, calm down, yeah. We don't know that when the scholars are using all these words, they know what they are saying. So emotional is, I can get angry, I can get sad, and all that. Emotionalistic is, when the gathering of the meeting can begin to um, sway the way your emotions go in a certain ecstatic form. So it's the end is usually towards ecstasy. So you are feeling goosebumps, you are feeling and you are laughing. That's why you don't see people getting angry on in the spirit. Have you ever seen someone getting angry in the spirit? You don't see people getting angry in the spirit. You don't see people getting sad in the spirit. You don't see people getting um, 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 sexually aroused in the spirit. So it's not just being emotional. It is towards... If you have gone to a meeting with a man, see what we are saying, right? Do you see the problem? This is the problem with emotionalism. It can go too far. It can go too far such that people begin to... Because it's emotions, right? People begin to enjoy that and there will be no substance. It's extremely seductive, right? But there's also another side where you can be very intellectual and rigorous and systematic, right? But the juice, the fuel of emotions in our worship, you will deprive yourself of it. It, has, it is of some value. That's why you will see that there are certain things that happen among Christians in the atmosphere of emotionalism. There are certain things that happen because when your heart can be taken, when someone can win your heart, it is easy for the person to get you to see things. It's easy for the person to even condition your behavior. That's why, interestingly, started with holiness moments. Because it's a way that you can get people's emotions stirred up that it's not be easy for you to change their behavior. You know, I just said to you now. You know, it is when someone has been misbehaving, he has multiple sexual partners, and he comes for meetings. And he sees a meeting where emotionalism is stirred up, and then he feels things, and things touch him, and all kinds of things happen to him, and everything. And then he now says, "No, no, no, no! I've tasted of the sweetness of Jesus. I can't go and live my life the way it was." Do you understand that? What the evangelicals will expect of you is that it will teach you God's word and show you how you should not behave like this. But in meeting when you can bypass somebody's brain into their heart, you will get results much more quickly. Church out together. So, that is the thing. And the reason why it was easy for a lot of, for the movement to start, was because the people that carried it, the people that started it, they did not go to school. So they did not have the burden of checking whether Mark chapter 16 from verse 9 to 16 had issues. They did not have the burden of, you know, having to study. Uh, Them, they just read it. And, you know, like, like Parhan read, he just read and now said, um, uh, how did he even say it? I'm trying to remember one thing that he said. You know, people like um, people like good words. He just read that he that speaks in tongues edifies himself. I just believe that I've spoken in tongues and I've edified myself. And that means that I can Read English even though I've never learned it and carry the Bible and read it. It takes naivety to believe that kind of thing. Do you understand that? There's a certain naivety, there's a certain childishness, that's the word that illiteracy affords you. Over sabi, they come when you have gone to Oxford. Church together. You you are seeing the difference between them, Abi. It's true. You understand what I'm saying? (laughs) (laughs) Praise God. Right? So, that's, that's how it is. So, and that's why, and what I will prescribe, mm-hmm, as a man that, that, that knows little, what I will prescribe is the body of Christ. One man has done it. So, it began to look like as if, if, when I began to look at the history, I'm going to look at everything. There's a whole lot of things I cannot go into because of time. I began to discover that it almost seemed like as if for charismatics to thrive, the intellect needs to decline. And the moment we begin to really think, our charismatics will go down. That's the way it appears. There's an intellectual side to our faith, which is extremely important. John MacArthur has a very, very huge criticism of charismatic movement. And one of his critics is that The charismatic movement has not added anything to Christianity. And the reason why he says that is because when it comes to our theology as Christians, what we believe as Christians, there's nothing that charismatic Pentecostals have added. They've not added anything. Justification by faith is what we've been teaching since. Sorry? I didn't hear. Say it up like a. Eh? Don't even start that one. (laughs) Don't even start. So John MacArthur will say that everything about Christian theology, that charismatics did not add anything. There's an intellectual side to Christianity. For example, justification by faith. How do you believe it? How do you know it? It's not by laying of hands. It's not by laughing in the spirit. You will read it. It's intellectual. You will understand it. How do we know that Jesus died and rose again? How can we believe the law and the prophets and believe that they are speaking of Jesus? It's because we will sit down and think. And see what was Isaiah saying here? What was Paul saying? That's why Paul was extremely intellectual. If not because the world wants to box him into the religious side, the most influential philosopher after Plato is Paul. So there's a huge part of our work that is intellectual. Jesus himself demonstrated intellectualism. All his teachings and all his probably. there's a huge part of our gospel that is intellectual, right? But there's also a huge part of our gospel that is also what? Emotional. Jesus demonstrated it. There's an emotionalistic part of it too. Right? Um, um, you know, somebody wants to... Um, somebody is, um, somebody has, has adultery and then you get the person saved. You know, people are sick and you get them healed. People are hungry and you say, ah, I feel for them. How can we help them? You know, those kinds of things. Paul also was involved. Look at a man... And he saw that the man was had faith to be healed. And he said, Rise up and walk. And the man emotionalism. Involvement in people in their emotions. And that's why that's one of the very interesting things. One of the reasons why speaking in tongues seems to be a game changer whenever it is introduced into any atmosphere. Like speaking in tongues is the number one precursor for charismatics. If you drop tongues in any guardian of believers, no matter how stiff they are, when you Drop tongues, boom. Emotionalism start. People's emotions come up because there's something about tongues that makes people's hearts to become emotionally involved in worship. And once people's hearts become emotionally involved in worship, all kinds of things begin to happen from there. Church out together. So the the church, Christians don't need to pick one. Pentecostalism might have started the way it started, huh? Yeah? But we can't progress. There should be systematization of what we believe. There should be intellectual rigor in what we believe. And at the same time, we must not, you know, rob ourselves of charismatics. Hallelujah. So this is the context that we're going to start on. Now, we're going to begin to look at um, everything Everything about the charismatics. The next thing I'm going to do next Sunday is that I want to lay a Next Wednesday, I want to lay a theological context for charismatics in the scriptures. I'm going to show you guys a couple of things. That's why we're going to talk about things about um, the continualist and the cessationist and all that. I want to lay a theological ground for charismatics. We're going to talk about, we're not going to go into deep, into explaining. We're going to talk about what is believed. Why did the church for 1,900 years not get Pentecostal? Why? How were they reading their Bible? We're not going to deceive ourselves. Because it's something that Pentecostals do. They will sit down in the 20th century and be thinking that that's how Christianity has always been. If you want to know how Christianity has looked like for most of human history, go to Catholic Church. That's the simple truth. That's just the simple truth. You are the one that is weird, not them. <laughs> they are actually... See, that's why they look so much like the Eastern Orthodox Church because that's how it's liturgy has always been our thing, right? Um, anyway, let me not get into all that. So we're going to look at you know we're going to look at the the context for all those things next Wednesday. We'll look at the scriptures that talk about charismatics, what they say. Are they prescriptive? Are they descriptive? And then from there we'll now proceed. Um, church all together. Thank you for listening to this message. We hope you were blessed. For more updates on our programs and audio messages, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at This Excellent Church. God bless you.